This week's episode is brought to you by Searchlight Pictures, presenting All of Us Strangers, a moving and intimate story of one man's journey to reconcile the past and hold on to a burgeoning romance in his future. Directed and written by Andrew Haig, All of Us Strangers stars Andrew Scott, Paul Meskell, Claire Foy, and Jamie Bell. Letterboxd members made it one of the highest rated romance and fantasy films in our year in review. On Letterboxd, Jonathan calls the film a genuinely special movie-going experience, incredibly sexy and tender. And Sabrina awards five stars for Andrew Scott. All of Us Strangers is the winner of seven Biffa Awards, including Best British Independent Film and the National Society of Film Critics Award for Best Actor, Andrew Scott. Plus, it's just picked up six BAFTA nominations. All of Us Strangers is now playing in theaters everywhere. This week on Best in Show, it's all about sound. The sound of BAFTA nominations, reactions, and the sound of sound design itself, featuring two of the most harrowing Sonic-focused stories of the season, The Zone of Interest and Society of the Snow. Welcome to Best in Show, a limited podcast series brought to you by The Letterboxd Show. I am Mia Lee Vicino, the West Coast editor here at Letterboxd, and Best in Show is all about award season. Throughout the series, we are discussing the noms and gongs, we meet insiders and contenders, and we dig through that Letterboxd data. Mostly, we do what we always do here at Letterboxd, celebrate cinema. And here again to celebrate cinema with me are my best in-show besties, our editor-in-chief, Gemma Gracewood. G'day. And our London editor and BAFTA bestie, Ella Kemp. Hello. Our other bestie, Brian, is away this week recovering from a charming chat with Marty and Leo, no big deal, which you can watch on our YouTube channel right now. But it is Ella's time to shine anyway because the BAFTA nominations are in, not to mention several other newly minted nominees and winners in this busy, busy, busy award season. So, so busy. Um, so before we get to the tasty filling in our awards sandwich with sound designer Johnny Byrne of the achingly good Zone of Interest audio experience and J.A. Bayona, who directed the sound of deafening, life-threatening silence in Society of the Snow, Let's do it. Let's dive into these BAFTA noms. The British Academy of Film and Television Arts nominations are in. They are BAFTA on Letterboxd. You can jump on their HQ to check out all of their fantastic lists while we go through these noms. Though I do have to admit, I am a little perturbed (laughs) by these things, especially the lack of Lily Gladstone. Ah! So in order to not be accused of being anglophobic, let's hear from our London editor, Ella. I mean, I'm I'm also perturbed. Um, do not worry, I'm, I'm right there with you. Are the BAFTA are BAFTA always this strange? Yes, yes. Okay. Next question. Yes, <laughs> this is. I I do think that I uh, I have to choose my words carefully here, but I do think BAFTA are quite representative of many things about living in the UK. When I talk to anyone who doesn't live in the UK, and they say, "Oh, that thing about the UK is really weird and bad," you go. Yeah, I'm sorry. I wish it wasn't like that. You know, but 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 no. I mean, with many things to discuss with the BAFTA nominations, there's uh, good and bad. I'm going to start with the good. Uh, there's very good news, very relevant news for this episode in that the Zone of Interest has nine nominations, which I think the Zone of Interest is a masterpiece. And I was quite surprised they got nine nominations. I think 
there's been a little bit of noise online in the last few weeks of across the awards nominations and bodies folks saying of course it's got no nominations nobody's been able to see it and I'm like well (laughs) we know that's not exactly how award season works by this point um and BAFTA saw it so that's cool shout out to Jonathan Glazer shout out to Johnny Byrne who we will talk to in a bit that's good Uh, another good a good British boy Christopher Nolan he's he's British Let's, let's, let's not forget it. Uh, Oppenheimer leads the BAFTA nominations with 13 nods, which is pretty, it's all right. It's pretty, pretty astonishing, I think. This is, a, this is a different conversation, but I will say I did not think when I was watching Oppenheimer that it would be the front runner at the BAFTAs and many other things across award season. But Is it the Killian Murphy and Emily Blunt effect, maybe? You know, something to do with the, the actual British-Irishness of the cast? Who knows? Or is it just that it's, you know, a huge, stonkingly good film? Also, Christopher Nolan, like, he's your English boy. The thing is, Gemma, I know this. I know this all the time. I feel like some people forget this, you know? Mm, But I'm mm. happy. I'm happy we're all on the same page. But unfortunately, that's the last of the good news that I have about the BAFTA nominations. (laughs) (laughs) Let's let's get into it. Now, um, you know, Christopher Nolan does exist, but apparently Lily Gladstone and Martin Scorsese do not. Mm. Robert De Niro does though so that's nice uh, Robert De Niro was nominated you know for supporting actor for Kids of the Flower Moon sure it's a movie in which he is an actor who is who is supporting he's pretty nasty in it it's you know as mafia roles go it's one of his all-time best but it's maybe his most evil role sure in a lot of evil roles yeah but do you think that BAFTA members looked at Lily Gladstone and Killers of the Flower Moon and thought, well, she spent a lot of the movie in bed, so is it really leading actress material? That's a generous interpretation. <laughs> Very generous of you, Gemma. <laughs> I mean, but I mean, unfortunately, I kind of think it might hold some water in the sense that Kerry Mulligan not got nominated for Maestro. Has Kerry Mulligan got many nominations for Maestro? I think, I think she's fabulous in Maestro. But when I kind of saw that crop up today, I thought, yeah, this is this is a BAFTA nomination. You know, it's kind of yeah. She's, I feel like she's a BAFTA fave. Yeah. She's she's won before. She's been nominated before. They like her at the awards, right? So there's mm-hmm. a little bit of this going on as well. I was uh, sadly <laughs> kind of looking through some clips from the Emmys yesterday, and uh, I feel like Carrie Mulligan's nomination and repeated nominations. And I must stress, I think she's a truly incredible actress and love what she does in Maestro, but I do feel like her repeated nominations at BAFTA are kind of like Bob Odenkirk at the Emmys. It's not the Emmys unless Bob Odenkirk is nominated for Better Call Saul. Doesn't matter if he's going to win or not. He just has to be there. I feel like we're going to get to that when we talk about the holdovers and, and we and we do sort of get to the nub of this a lot in Best in Show. There's, there's the excellent of the art itself and then there's what an awards season requires in terms of repeat characters you know, on the carpets and at the ceremonies, right? And we, we're definitely seeing a lot of that going on this season. 100%. Will we see enough of Andrew Scott, though? <laughs> oh, okay. Well, this leads me on to the single worst thing that BAFTA... I'm also not being dramatic. I do think this is one of the all-time worst snubs they could have done. So Andrew Scott was not nominated for Best Act- Leading Actor for All of Us Strangers... The reason this is so shocking is because Paul Meskell was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Now, when we spoke to Paul for this podcast and we were talking about his role, he was very sort of stubbornly telling us, no, 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 all I do in this film, all I must do 
is support Andrew's character. And, and I'm very proud of that. And, you know, he does it beautifully and it is a deserved nomination, but it's like his nomination couldn't exist without what Andrew Scott does. And and also, you know, Claire Foy's nominated and she's great, but she doesn't <laughs> she doesn't have a scene without Andrew Scott. And, you know, uh, the kind of sadness and heartbreak that she has, it's only bouncing off what he's doing. And also this film is nominated for best casting, you know? Sorry, I, I said earlier today I wasn't going to get angry, but... No, no, you're allowed to get, get angry. Get angry, and I, Ella. Get angry, just like let it rip. I was just going to say Andrew Scott in All of Us Strangers is my favourite leading male performance of the year by a long shot. Um, still rooting for Killian Murphy, Oppenheimer, of course, and everything. But um, it's very disappointing. I thought that like if anywhere Andrew had a shot, it was at the BAFTAs. So I'm also, I, I agree with you. Yeah. And also it shouldn't be as complex to know how the voting works. Do you have any insights into um, the saves? Like apparently there's this thing with BAFTA where once the members have made their votes for the nominations, the jury is able to add some extra names for um, quote-unquote diversity, I guess. Which means we do have the joy of Vivian O'Para from Rye Lane being a Best Actress nominee, which is exciting. Deserved. Deserved. Mm -hmm. It's huge. Yeah, I mean, that's a very good question. I personally wasn't, I wasn't hugely aware of it. However, I know that at BIFA, the British Independent Film Awards, there are certain categories that, so I vote for the BIFAs, but essentially, I vote um, in the way that you see, you watch hundreds of films and you're kind of, you're sifting through to make the long list and then eventually the short list. But then once you've placed your votes on the short list, there's sometimes a jury for certain categories who will then sort of look at all the votes from the voters and, I don't know, decide <laughs> whether that's correct or not. They're wrong. All those people right. are wrong. Yeah, so, so it's, 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 you know, it strikes me as something that could be sort of similar in that way. And, you know, there have there have been there have been moments over the years where BAFTAs have been accused of being far too white, rightly so. And like, you know, that's not the case this year, which is great. However, that doesn't mean it's correct in terms of who should be nominated, because, you know, mm. I'm thrilled that Vivian O'Para is nominated and she deserves to be. So does Greta Lee. <laughs> You know, mm -hmm. so does Lily Gladstone. I know that's right. Like, I know that's you know, right. It's just like the math is not mathing here, you know, because you've not just added in <laughs> actors and filmmakers for the sake of diversity. Not that that is like, there's not even possibly a thing. When you look at all the films in contention this year, it's just like, it's like white people need to do better, you know? Yes, yeah. It's just Lily Gladstone. <laughs> oh my God, yeah. Like, for God's sake. Well, speaking <sighs> of some white people doing better, um, are there. Are there some nominations you are happy to see in BAFTA? Um, I mean, let's talk about Scrapper. Let's talk about How to Have Sex. Let's talk yeah, about some of I our, our favourite female white directors and their work. I, I, love, I love these white women. You know, I there are some white women that I love. And Paul King. And Paul King, right. our, our kind king. Honorary white woman, yeah. yeah. It's white women Paul and queen. Paul King. Paul Queen. Paul, Paul Queen. Queen. Paul Queen. Okay, so we've got Charlotte Regan, who wrote and directed Scrapper. And we've got Molly Manning-Walker who wrote and directed How to Have Sex and also was a cinematographer on Scrapper. So those amazing, brilliant women, amazing, brilliant independent films, amazing, brilliant everything. Um, you can read Gemma's conversation with Molly on Journal and my conversation with Charlotte on Journal. Um, speaking of women, uh, I, I, May, December, it's just disappearing, eh? Nobody wants, <laughs> nobody wants a bar of it. 
What's remember, happening? Remember the May of December. Come on, y'all. Charles, are you listening? I, Charles I Milton, we will uh, save you. One good bit of news for all of us strangers. Uh, yes, it does have BAFTA nominations, even though it doesn't include Andrew Scott, but... Also this week, um, the GLAAD Awards announced their nominations and All of Us Strangers is at the top of the list for Outstanding Film. So we are glad for GLAAD, the world's largest queer media advocacy organisation. Love you. Um, anything else to be glad about in the BAFTA noms? Yes, yes, yes. Actually, the BAFTA EE Rising Star Awards. So shout out to Ireland's most famous Letterboxd member and Pride and Prejudice stan, Io Adebery, for her inclusion in this category alongside Phoebe Dinavore, Jacob Alordi, Mia McKenna-Bruce, and Sophie Wilde. All, all great rising stars, all of them. It's, it, it's clearly one of the only Irish inclusions that BAFTA were game for this year. It's really Io and Paul Meskell. They were like, for, for all of us strangers, I, I, do, I do love many things you do, BAFTA, but um, it, is, it is funny that it's like, Paul Meskell, he represents enough Ireland for Andrew Scott as well. Anyway, um, in all serious news, uh, the E! Rising Star Award is voted for by the public. So, um, you know, you know what to do to get Io that EGOT status by her winning the EE BAFTA Rising Star Award. She is the people's princess, after all. We're going to go behind the curtain now to sound design. So the Motion Picture Sound Editors just released the nominees for the 71st Annual Golden Reel Awards this week. And as with all of the Guild Awards, these are a chance to really, really understand all the different aspects of the craft as opposed to just being lumped into a single award at BAFTA or Oscar level. So they break feature film, animation, documentary, television, and video games, okay, gamer girl representation, into separate groups, and then they drill down into specific categories. Um, yeah, those categories include music editing, dialogue and ADR editing, and effects and foley. Uh, shamefully, the octopus that the Saltburn team used to create the bathtub sound effect was not recognised <laughs> in the effects and foley nominations for a feature film. Uh, that category is made up of Napoleon, Oppenheimer, John Wick 4, The Killer, Ferrari, and Gran Turismo, aka Bombs, Guns, and Cars. No room for um, bathtub slurping, I guess. Sad. That's so sad. We all should have room for bathtub slurping. Gemma, Gemma, Gemma. Actually, could you explain the difference between dialogue and ADR and Foley and why these categories are distinct and require different skill sets? I would love to. I am no sound expert. Uh, I'm deaf in one ear. God forbid I could create any stereo sound surround for anything, but... But you are uh, our Foley expert, by the way, because yeah. you make the Foley sounds during the I mailbag do. segment. I know, so. and we have no mailbag segment this week, but let me just uh, grab my notes yes. about the difference Foley between example. Foley and ADR. Um, it's, uh, so dialogue um, and ADR deals with people speaking uh, and Foley and effects deals with Barry Keoghan licking a bathtub plug hole. I mean, that's <laughs> a really simple explanation or, or, or the elephant in the room, the explosion in Oppenheimer. The longer explanation is that a film set is a really complicated environment for capturing the, the real sound of the things that you're seeing and for making sure that that sound... Um, particularly in action films, is actiony enough, you know, has enough impact, is visceral enough, I guess. So you're, you're sort of making the audible visceral 
um, you know, making sound that you can feel. Um, so Barry in the bathtub, when they're filming, when they're on set, it's all about that close up. It's all about getting that tongue in the right part of that plug <laughs> hole. <laughs> but the sound of that might be a little less convincing. So you want to Dolby 7.1, that slurp up to sound really good. Uh, so there are teams of truly inventive Foley experts out there. I should have had a content warning for this section, I guess, um, who try out all sorts of things to get exactly the right cinematic sound. And that's where the octopus came in for Saltburn. But also, you know, like the sound of Keanu Reeves tumbling down the Montmartre steps or mm. Michael Fassbender quietly sitting and eating his hard-boiled egg between kills, which is really what the Academy, the Oscars, like to reward in, in sound in their single sound category is the ability of Foley and effects to ramp up the action and give us that visceral cinematic experience. Um, and if you've seen the final scene of Killers of the Flower Moon, there are, well, the second to final scene, there are literal Foley artists in the picture because they're mm-hmm. it's the radio show segment. Um, so like think of the most classic Foley trick being a pair of shoes on the end of sticks and a tray of gravel for the sound of footsteps. Um, that's the simple stuff. Um, for the same reason dialogue editing and ADR or automated dialogue replacement is important for getting the rhythm of a scene right. What's recorded on the day on set versus how it sounds in the edit um, in terms of people talking to each other often requires a different read by an actor or there might be some seriously overlapping off-screen dialogue that the sound editors need to get stuck into to finesse once the editor has decided what we want to see versus what we want to hear. So thinking especially of large casts like Barbie, or courtroom scenes, which we had a few of in this past um, year of cinema in Oppenheimer, Anatomy of a Fall, where we want to see reactions while hearing accusations and overlapping dialogue. Does this all make sense? Yes, and I just want to say I uh, that reminds me of how uh, background artists in big scenes like those have to just mouth words like peas and carrots, peas and carrots, um, because <laughs> if they if they say lines, then they <laughs> the production has to pay them. Yeah, um, <laughs> and we haven't even got to music editing, by the way, which is also part of what the Golden Reel Awards. And so that's things like, and how to have sex. If you if you read my journal story that Ella mentioned with uh, Molly Manning Walker, there's a whole section around how they choreograph the club scenes because, of course, they can't play the music because they need to be able to hear the dialogue but they will get the music pumping to a certain BPM, get everybody at that beat, and then they'll silently choreograph them, kind of like, you know, have a maestro Bradley Cooper person in there keeping that beat going while everyone's raving, but there's no music. Uh, and so then that's where the music editors come in afterwards to add Oh my that God, up. I'd forgotten about Maestro at the club. <laughs> <laughs> That was one of my favorite scenes. <laughs> my favorite thing about Maestro at the, cl- at the club is you can clearly see a young Lydia Tarr dancing behind Bradley Stop Cooper. <laughs> they need to queen out at the club. I love that. It's canon. That happened. That did happen. So, yeah. So the, so the Golden Reels, highly recommend looking at the nominations because, like I said, the Academy has won one award for sound. But the Golden Reels really show you how it all breaks down. Thank you, Golden Reels. Thank you, Golden Thank Reels. Thank you, Golden Reels. So before we, we dive into these international sound nominees, I do need to just give the quickest shout out to J.D. Sampson of Les Tigre, one of my favorite <gasps> bands, for yes. winning awards and scooping up noms for their score for the documentary 32 Sounds. So See, and thank you to the Golden Reel for awarding documentaries and also rock on J.D., never danced as hard to a DJ ever in my life. In the international feature section of the Golden Reel, Anatomy of a Fall, Zone of Interest, 
Godzilla Minus One and Society of the Snow are the chosen ones. Every single one of those sound designs is effing fantastic. But we are going to zero in on two, The Zone of Interest and Society of the Snow, since we recently chatted with the filmmakers behind those two. So Society of the Snow is on the Oscar shortlist for makeup and hair, international feature film, original score, and visual effects, but strangely not for sound. Apparently, the Academy Sound Branch did not search up Letterboxd reviews, which go on and on and on about the sound design. Here are a couple. This first one is from Garfinkel. The sound design made this a thousand times more terrifying and realistic than it should have been. Here's one from Kevin McAuliffe, uh, who says Society of the Snow is very harrowing, but very good. Awesome sound design. It is too bad this was overlooked by the Academy because it truly is great sound work, especially for the plane crash. So true. It's true. It's true. Now, um, I personally am not the sound branch of the Academy. Um, I am not here to ignore the horrifying sound of that plane crash, which you know, you kind of hear as much of the plane as everything and everyone crashing within it. It is truly something that is quite difficult to describe. So that's why when I caught up with director Jay Biona about Society of the Snow to talk about all sorts of things for an upcoming episode, we did sneak in a few questions about sound design and he was pretty happy to talk about it. You can have a listen now. A lot of the authenticity you feel, I think, comes from a lot of the technical aspects of the film and the craft. Um, I think the sound design in particular is... Yeah, and the performances. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's incredible with these actors, you know, who don't have much acting experience. And I think you sort of, I've, I've never really thought about the way that snow sounds in that way. And I know you went to the Andes where the plane crashed and everything. I'm wondering if sort of going to those places and, you know, better understanding the authenticity yourself... Did that help or hinder the technical design of the film, like the way you filmed things? Did it Was it easier or was it harder to film in these places where, you know, life doesn't exist, let alone filmmaking? No, I, I, I definitely had to be there. And, and I went before starting main uh, photography in Spain. That was in January 2021. I traveled to El Valle de las Lagrimas, Valley of the Tears, where the plane crashed. That's in the the Argentinian Andes. Um, it took three days to get there, to get used to the altitude. You can you can get there really quickly with a helicopter in 20 minutes uh, after being four hours in a car. But um, the problem is the altitude. So you, you it's like going to the Everest. So you need to stop and get used to the altitude as, as you go there. Um, I had to be, I had to stop three times. I, but because I, I had to go, I had to go there in three days. But because you are always rushing it when you're preparing a film, it was in, instead of three days, it was two, and it was a horrible mistake because I, I spent one of the worst nights in my life sleeping in a small tent right where the plane uh, was. Were you on your own? No, I was with uh, a group of professional climbers. It was uh, we used to call it. Uh, it was the the zero step in the making of this film. Uh, uh, the first step was the main photography, but the zero level was going to the mountains with a group of professional climbers. We shot all the backgrounds and took thousands of pictures. 
in the most difficult conditions <laughs> because some of the pictures had to be taken. We couldn't, we, we couldn't use drones because the, because of the lack of oxygen. So the drones will not fly in there. So, but I had the, one of the worst nights ever. Uh, but it gave me, it gave me the idea of what was to be there. I remember that I was, of course, impressed about the, the sight of those mountains, but because it's the biggest mountain range in, on planet Earth. It's the, but I was very impressed about the sound. And as I, as soon as I, uh, I got back and I got signal, I called the sound designer and I asked him to be in contact with the professional climbers, uh, we were working with because the, the specifics of, of the sounds it's uh, are very interesting. Actually, one of the most shocking things of being there was to see that uh, the the thing that you hear the most is yourself, because there's nothing alive in there. It's this silence that feels almost like sacred. Um, and then you start to hear your breathing uh, and your foot, even your your heartbeat. Sometimes you know it's it it, it beats so hard, um, so fast. Um, it's interesting. So I asked the sound designer to to get in contact with them and, and knowing all the specifics of the sound. Oriol Tarago, I've been working with him since uh, The Orphanage, my first movie. I want to ask specifically about how in the world, you know, you both came up with the sound design for the plane crash, because I think that sequence is... I, I don't even have the words for that sequence in both the visuals and the sound of it. How did you decide? Because it's, you know, I think it's very visceral and it is the most visceral part of the film, which... I don't know. I think you could imagine that, you know, when the boys realize the sacrifices they have to make to stay alive, you deal with that extremely sensitively. And, you know, the crash is not not sensitive, but it's very brutal as well. Yeah. I um, talk to Uriol in order to create something um, that felt very immersive. Uh, so we, we we decided to... Uh, shoot the film, most of it from inside the plane. There's barely like three, three, four shots from the outside, no more than that. Um, and by doing so, it, it, you really have the impression of being there with, with them, not knowing more than what they knew, which was basically nothing. Uh, we don't get into the cockpit because we don't know really what happened inside. Uh, we know that there was a human error because the Uruguayan army has recognized that there was a human error in the cockpit, but we really don't know what was that. And out of respect for the pilot, we never got there. Uh, so we, we, we stay with uh, Numa and the characters around him. And it's true that the sound design was a big challenge in order to, to create the dynamic. Uh, Uriol had to find what was the real sound of the engine. And it's a plane that doesn't uh, fly anymore. The, so, so he had to, find uh, on our old archives what is the exact exact sound of that engine and then find something similar. Uh, and then he creates, there is no score, there is no music in the scene, so he creates this kind of like um, ramp of sound with the engine and all the small elements and details. I, I remember I gave him a couple of suggestions. I remember being on a flight and hearing the, the, the sounds of the plane like cracking uh, with the with the wind, and it felt like the the sound of a hurt animal. So when you when you see the plane uh, disappearing into a cloud, you can hear almost like the 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 plane complaining. There is this kind of sound like doing like if the plane will, will be telling you, "I don't want to get inside." You know, it sounds like a, an animal 
like a heart animal. Um, and these kind of ideas, uh, I remember like for a, for a long time, we were taking so many flights that I was like recording sounds, uh, recording videos also that I was sending to the visual effects guys in order to get all the specific specifics of the light on, on how the light and the clouds affect affect the surface of of the of the plane so so it was a, a, a lot about taking care of details you know the attention to detail Sound design not only affects and reflects the film's environment, but the characters as well. And I actually talked to one of the killers of the Flower Moon sound designers, Mark Ulano, at the Governor's Awards about how sound, it's the most invisible element of filmmaking, but it's also the most emotional. Have a listen. The soundscape has to reflect the characters and the story that they're in and the journey that they're on. So what we do is we we capture performance in the tonality of the story's idea. So when we have a director like, an iconic director like Martin Scorsese, we are given a real inside sense of what these characters should transmit to the audience. We want to connect those characters to the audience in a way that the audience invests, they believe, they become uh, uh, engaged in them as characters and go on for the ride. So everything we do is tied to that idea, that roadmap. And it's different every movie. An underrated sound design aspect of Flower Moon are those end credits, which are punctuated with these authentic sounds of nature instead of music. And it really accentuates that the film is ultimately about the Osage land and its flora and fauna racked and fracked by man. And another film about truly man-made horrors is Jonathan Glazer's The Zone of Interest. It's Oscar shortlisted for sound design, longlisted for original score, and is the UK's international feature entry. BAFTA liked the sound, but not the score. Sure, it's BAFTA. Justice for but, Mika Levy! You know, Mika <laughs> Levy, we, we hear you. We hear everything you did. You can come on the pod anytime. But until Mika joins us, I had the true pleasure of chatting with sound designer Johnny Byrne, who has been working with Jonathan Glazer for over two decades now and also worked on fellow contender Poor Things this year. Mm-hmm. Before we are going to dive very deep into the sound design of this film, um, just thinking about the Cannes premiere and all of the different places that the Zone of Interest has played this year, you know, played at multiple different film festivals, you had a premiere at um, Toronto. I'm interested in the work that has gone into playing the film in these different venues, particularly from the um, sound perspective, because obviously it is so layered and so detailed. And I imagine that in different cinemas, you know, you might, like it's, different equipment, right? Different speakers, different things like that. Um, Were there any kind of challenges you faced when wanting to play this film to the best effect in different venues with different setups? Yeah, definitely. It's huge that. And, and, you know, and unfortunately, you know, what you are aiming to do is produce something that will work as best as it can kind of everywhere. Um, The Cannes premiere itself is something that you all get very nervous about. And, and it is that was the specific goal that we were blinkedly focused on, and and we were lucky that we knew that after the Cannes premiere, we we would have the opportunity to adjust what we had done. So, in fact, as we were walking into the Cannes premiere, John said to me, 
you know, don't forget, this is just like a market research, you know, kind of test screening. We can, we can still make an adjustment if we need to, you know, if we've got any of the levels. Wrong. But, um, and also the, uh, at Cannes, it's, an, it's a lovely, enormous room, but my goodness, it, it's difficult to reproduce sound faithfully like it, like it is in some, uh, you know, places. So it's, it's a hard, it is a hard, um, it's a hard audience that <clears throat> from a sound point of view can. So, so yeah, we were very, I, I was hugely nervous about, 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 and the way that we mixed the film was very much that, um, Mika's score, the, the overture and, and the final piece would, uh, very much be in the room. And, um, and that was like, you know, for us to, to relax and, and calm down and get into the idea of watching this film. And the pretty much the entirety of the rest of the film is on the front wall and does not exist in the surround domain. And, um, you know, and so that was something that we had to attenuate quite a bit. And, and at the test screening, you know, at Cannes, they give you a slot, like in ours was at 2.30 in the morning on the night before the premiere. We went in there to, to listen to like half an hour of the film to check that the levels are right and all that sort of stuff. And um, yeah, and that was, I was already coming down with meningitis by that point and didn't know, but, but um, John was saying to me, you know, it's not working. The Mika's score is not enough in the room. You know, what can we do to to adjust it? So yeah, there's there's all in in the early days of a film's release, you spend a lot of time going to test screenings and being the person as a sound guy who does the tech check before a screening. And so I have lots of opportunities to kind of fiddle and adjust in all sorts of different uh, cinema settings to to then go and you know make the final adjustment that will hopefully rule them all. Uh, I want to touch a little bit on your collaboration with Jonathan Glazer. Uh, for those listening who might not know, you know, you've been working together for, for over two decades on so many different projects, including Under the Skin. Um, what do you think you both initially bonded over that sort of brought you together as creatives? What kind of things do you have in common in the way you work? Um, John's a director who really loves to use sound in a way that um, can often provide you know, a different narrative or emotion to, to what the, the dialogue may be saying or whatever. So he, he, he very much understands that sound is a very powerful tool, tool much underlooked. And, um, yeah, when I started working with John, it was, uh, you know, 25 years ago or something. And, and we did, uh, uncle rabbit in the headlights and various other videos and stuff. And, and I, I was not working in the film domain at all. And so he just found me as someone who cared about sound as much as he did. And then the process of working with John was in fact kind of my film school because, you know, he's, he's so, uh, he so loves working together for, you know, hours, hours at a time that the process of sitting with John and, and making a film together is hugely in, informative, you know, for me of why, why shots work and why he makes those choices and all, you know, in every aspect of how he makes a film. So, I, you know, and he's also a wonderful gentleman. So I, I really love hanging out with him, you know. But yeah. I think we both care enormously about sound and, and are prepared to put a lot of effort into doing so. Mm. What are some of the techniques that you developed on, say, something like Under the Skin Together that you've carried through in your work that might be felt in the zone of interest, obviously executed in very different ways? I think we learned on Under the Skin that, uh, like, immersive sound isn't necessarily about having surround sound whooshing around you and all those things. It's about having credibility in the sound that you use. And we, our first passes on Under the Skin were, were using sort of um, uh, stock sound effects and trying to figure out, 
you know, how that would work. And it was, it just sounded awful. So I, I spent um, months really were, uh, going around Scotland to all the different locations and recording my own real versions of of people talking and the the winds and all those sort of things. So, see, so yeah, I think the the thing that we learned very much is is sound has to have credibility because it's so you know you can fool the eye much easier than you can fool the ear. And for for a, a Jonathan Glazer film, you know that whole credibility thing is is enormously important. Kind of on that, I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your research process on the side of interest because I've sort of seen you talk about it a little bit. I mean, exhaustive feels like it doesn't even cover it. Um, you know, how do you kind of dive as deep as you can into all the different parts of it that you need to while honestly taking care of yourself enough to be able to do the work through to the finish line? Tricky one. We <laughs> So I read the script, you know, a, a year before production and and that was a bit of a sort of oh my goodness moment because I realised that not only did the film have enormous responsibility in its use of sound to make the film work, you know, and and that we would go all the way through production, shooting it, you know, with John, with John had the Polish crew. Some of them would say to him, "When are you going to film the bad stuff?" You know, I thought this was a Holocaust film, and and you know, for and for A twenty four to to have a leap of faith that the film wouldn't really work until we were late in post-production. So there was that kind of, wow, we got an enormous job to get right. But more importantly, the responsibility, obviously, of, of, of respectfully, uh, you know, and responsibly um, providing the sound of, of mass murder and, and doing it in a way that isn't sensationalised, given that John had made, you know, the clear decision that we would never see any of the atrocity. And we would only hear it. So mm. definitely, my wife said, "You're, you're. I think you're getting depressed." And I, and I, and and I, and I you know, I mean, I wasn't there, so uh, so I was very lucky. Um, and there's, the film needs to be told, and you know, and I really enjoy working with John, so that's great. And yes, I think it was difficult for everybody who worked on it, really, and you know, and particularly, uh, you know, so for me, it was a year of research, and then and then like a you know a year of in post production of making the film that we see, film one, as we called it, which was everything before you put any of the sound of the camp on. And then another six months at the end of that of putting the sounds of the camp onto the, onto the, the you know, the film one. So, yeah, I definitely remember a, bit, a, a moment when I thought I might be feeling a bit down, but I, and I don't, and I'm pretty sure I'm out of it now. <laughs> I'm so sorry to drag you back into it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm interested in hearing a little bit about um, sort of the mechanics of filming scenes with dialogue as well, because, you know, it's obviously a huge part beyond the sound of the camps. Like this family speaks a lot. Um, can you talk me through the sort of recording process for that? Uh, I'm going to bring up another quote, which is one of yours, but it is one of John's where he said the production was like Big Brother in a Nazi house, which <laughs> I find absolutely fascinating. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so normally the, the, the primary role of the guy who records the sound on set is to get the dialogue. And, you know, that's the number one thing. And But here, it, this this film is, what they're actually saying is less important and it's about experiencing people in a house and and how they move around that house and, and their, their, you know, their daily routines. So um, whilst the actors did wear the normal lapel mic that, that you would put on a, a radio pack on an actor, the more important sound that we used, that was always the backup, but the sound that is the primary sound in the, in the film from the house is a network of hidden microphones that, that populated every room. And before every, every scene was, 
shot, these directional hidden mics would be repositioned. Most of them were on the ceiling and we had a nice healthy VFX budget to remove them afterwards. But, but they were, yeah, they were basically microphones that would capture not just the words, but also the, the footsteps and the teacup rattles and everything. Because, um, because I think that's what gives you the feeling that you're watching something that's really real, you know. And yeah, so the kind of Nazis and the Big Brother house thing is, is, is about, you know, using all those multiple camera positions and multiple microphones to, to follow these people around the house. And it's extraordinary that many scenes would be filmed simultaneously. So uh, there would be the mother in the kitchen with her friends and Rudolph really was, you know, in, in the room next door with the IG Farben men discussing the new plans for the new crematorium. And Elfrida with the baby would be walking around the house and the boys would be upstairs banging their drum and all those things were would be happening during a sort of one hour long take all at the same time. And so in, in making it, I had the choice between all the different, you know, 20 different microphones that from which I could follow the sound and make sure that, that you really were on a subtle level experiencing being in that house. Because, you know, if, if you saw a silhouette of a kid run past a window, I could make sure we had the correct sound for that, for example. Making it seem effortlessly natural was, was, the goal from the sort of huge resource of sound recording we had. I do love the idea of a VFX budget for a film set during the Holocaust to be used on sound. And like, I'm only kind of half joking because I think we see so many films set during the Holocaust where, you know, filmmakers, even if the films are not intended to be solely focusing on the horrors, show a lot of the horrors that that's what they're using the VFX yeah. budget on. Um, this is So this is just like, oh, it's for the microphone. No, it, it really worked. And it was funny, but poor Tarn, who who wired up the house, he um, he had it all done over a period of, of a week and it was extraordinary. And you could see all the wires and the wires, there were microphones on the ceiling and then he ran the wires on the ceiling and down the side of the room. And the night before shooting began, someone realised that the VFX budget would not cover the wires only the microphones. And so Tarn had to re- rerun two miles of cable, you know, staying up all night before the first night shooting <gasps> because we realised the wires had to go behind the ceiling and behind the wall. And so the vi- we did have a VFX budget, but only so much. <laughs> Pretty big, but not big enough. <laughs> but not enough. Yeah. Wow. I mean, how, how many times, if any, throughout your career have you worked in that way with that many microphones in every scene and those kind of long takes, either with Jonathan or, or, or with anyone else? Uh, gosh. Um, yeah, we did a Sony paint commercial once where um, John blew up paint on a housing block in Glasgow and we had a microphone in every different, in every each one of the different apartment buildings that exploded with paint. But... Um, but yeah, no, it's really un- unusual, isn't it? It's um, normally, you know, you would suggest that to a production and they would say, are you kidding? You know, you can do all that in post for a quarter of the price. And I'd be saying, well, but it's really important, you know, but but John fights for those values. And, and also John goes to enormous extent to, you know, he doesn't want to uh, stage theatre, he, you know, and, and have it that. He, he wants to recreate documentary invariably. So, so for him... You know, the house was a was not a flimsy set build. It was built out out of correct materials, and you know, the floor sounded like the right floor, and all of those things. So there was much more scope. You know, for those who listening who don't know, I mean, normally often a floor might look stone, but be actually made of rubber, so that the it doesn't make a sound, so that you can 
just only uh, collect the dialogue as as is normally the case, and then you put the footsteps in afterwards. But but here everything was faithfully done, so that you know there were no crew on set. The the cameras and the microphones were hidden, so that the actors, to as far as possible, could feel like they were in 1943 and they mm. could be lost in the middle of a, a one hour take and not know which cam you know where the camera was or to to where they should perform. It was all just you know Nazis and the Big Brother of a house, you know. Um, I I have endless questions about the zone of interest, but I am aware we are in the middle of a busy award season. Uh, I have two broader questions for you before I leave you. Uh, one, which is a very specific letterbox question, uh, which we like to ask everyone. Uh, when we interview directors, we often like to ask them what uh, what they would choose as a double bill with their film if folks are seeing the zone of interest what they'd like to watch afterwards um i would like to ask you that question but specifically from a sound perspective i think uh what kind of things it doesn't have to be similar to the zone of interest in any way just you know films in which the sound has really stayed with you that you would encourage folks to seek out afterwards my initial response would be palliatively something like airplane but um (laughs) (laughs) probably that's not the answer that we're looking for I think um, it could be whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, uh, gosh, yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, I love the way sound is used in the conversation and as a, a sort of backdrop to everything. But it's it's hard to to uh, find a film where sound is so comprehensively a kind of a, a mainstay of what you of what the. I mean, it's actually the sound is kind of the film you're watching in 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 this film to some large degree. It is. I mean, the conversation is a great great shout. An excellent film and a good Let's pick. Let's go with that then. And then we can go airplane as well. It's all fine. <laughs> Triple bill. <laughs> it's perfect. You've just spent, that's, what a day you would spend at the cinema if you're watching those three <laughs> films. Oh, yeah. Uh, final question for you. Uh, as this is an award season podcast, uh, we are asking everyone this award season, can you remember the first award you ever won? It doesn't have to be film or sound related. It's just the first one in your life you can remember. First award? Yeah. I mean, I, I won a, tankered for rowing for winning a rowing race when i was 14 i remember that on a on a um school rowing tour of vancouver uh, racing against shawnigan lake school so that's the first thing i can remember amazing solid awards Okay, it's time to sound off <laughs> about award seasons past via our own letterbox diaries. Okay, any historical award winners or badly robbed contenders that we've watched lately? Gemma, oh, you go first. Thank you. Thank you for going to me. I uh, did watch for the first time in my life with my child, The Prince of Egypt, 1998. Uh, this is directed by Brenda Chapman, Steve Hickner, Simon Wells. It won the 1999 Critics' Choice Award for Best Animated Feature tied with A Bug's Life. Um, It won so much. The thing is, uh, I did not know, and this is a theme on uh, movie social media at the moment, that The Prince of Egypt was a musical. (laughs) So we all sat down as a family to watch it, and when that first song started, the husband was out. He is, yeah, not a musical man. Uh, Not at all. Um, And But we stayed, um, me and the kid, and it was, yeah, so it was DreamWorks' first animation, and so it was a big 
deal. And that's why I watched it because I didn't know much about it, but it kept coming up on highest rated animated lists on Letterboxd. So I thought, well, we should give it a go. Um, why is this so good? You know, for 1998, it's extraordinary, specifically the um, scene involving the hieroglyphic wall that lays out the kind of backstory of, you know, the, the children and Egypt. It also felt important, I guess, to watch at this point in time in history to understand that um, where we are at in the Middle East now is kind of where we always have been and that children's lives and the smiting of firstborn sons uh, in whichever country is um, being aggressed upon is a thing that humans have done for many, many centuries. And it's Fucking wrong. Uh, but anyway, uh, in terms of what went absolutely right for The Prince of Egypt, um, it won many, many more awards. It was an Oscar winner for Stephen Schwartz for the original song, When You Believe, which I cannot believe <laughs> was a song from The Prince of Egypt. I just thought it was some pop song at the time. I had no idea at all that that massive pop hit came from The Prince of Egypt. Um, it beat Randy Newman's That'll Do from Babe Pig in the City. Uh, and it also was nominated the same year for Stephen Schwartz and Hans Zimmer for original musical score, but Shakespeare in Love won that one. Um, it was a nominee for multiple 1999 Annie Awards. It won none. And the reason is it was the year of the Iron Giant, which is one of the highest rated animated films on Letterboxd of all time. That swept the Annies with a giant broom. Unfun fact... Neither The Iron Giant nor The Prince of Egypt were nominated for Best Animated Feature at the Oscars that year because the Oscars didn't have an animated feature section mm. that year. It was established with Beauty and the Beast, exactly, right? Exactly, exactly, yes, exactly. Yes, I win trivia. 2002 for films released in 2001. So, yeah, that's what I watched. Um, any comments on Prince of Egypt? My only comment is that I may have told this on a different Letterboxd podcast before, but I asked to rent this at Hollywood Video when I was a kid, not realizing it was a religious film. And my my parents were so confused by my choice because we are not a religious household <laughs> at all. And my mom was almost like, hmm, I don't really want to explain religion to my child for <laughs> Prince of Egypt. Um, but <laughs> Did you want to rent it because there can be miracles? When you Probably. I loved musicals. Is I loved musicals that? and yes. animated films. That's the so. song, Ella. Wow. That's what I'm talking about. I had no idea. I you think, had no idea. I think that my reference point for that is maybe like a dozen auditions on The X Factor, which every Brit <laughs> listening will understand what exactly. that means. That's all I have. It's also one of those great musicals where uh, the lead actors, who include Val Kilmer and Sandra Bullock, do not sing the songs. They brought in Broadway singers to sing the songs because it's animation. I know, weird. They don't do that much anymore. No, that's not true. They do. They did it for Moana when they brought in the guy from Hamilton the Musical to sing for Timuera Morrison. Yeah, guess they can do that. I guess they can do that. <laughs> guess they can do that. <laughs> Speaking of iron giants and giants in general, uh, Mia, I was creeping on your diary. <laughs> I see a giant in there. There is, there is a massive giant, a three-hour and 21-minute long giant. This is, of course, Giant, 1956, directed by George Stevens and starring an all-star cast, by the way, of Elizabeth Taylor, Rock Hudson, and James Dean in his final role. Oh, my what God. What the heck? Epic. What the heck? So, yes, literally, ep like, literally epic. So, 
George Stevens, fabulous director, he won both the Directors Guild Award and Academy Award for Best Direction, plus Giant was nominated for nine other Oscars, some of which include Best Picture, Best Actor for James Dean and Rock Hudson, Best Supporting Actress, and Best Screenplay. And as as I've already said, this was James Dean's final role. And wow, it is a doozy. He's in his classic denim <sighs> outfit, his blue jeans. He's dripping with oil because um, it's about this is like a multi-generational epic about Texas and the oil rush and racism and cows and so many different topics. But um, yes, mostly I took away James Dean dripping with oil. Wowza. Also, he plays a weird guy named Jet Rink. And it's it's just, it's kind of bittersweet to see him take on this strange, weird role and think about like, oh, he could have played so many interesting characters, mm. if not for the automobiles of the world. So I I watched this because it's our friend Marty's favorite movie or one of his very favorite movies. He's alleged he's seen it over 40 times. I can't do math, but three hours and 20 minutes times 40 <laughs> is a really big number. That's a lot of hours with the cast of Giant. And this is also, he also cited it as an influence on Killers of the Flower Moon. So if you enjoyed that one, I, I really, really recommend Giant. Woo, Ella, your turn. Bring us home. Well, I, I had a well of a time in my diary in the last week. I I watched I watched To Die For. <gasps> 1995. Ah, 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 exactly. Nicole. Yeah, exactly. I I watched To Die For. I had never seen To Die For. I watched To Die For because our dear colleague Mitchell mentioned an upcoming Criterion release, I believe. Which, mm-hmm. you know, so I had some catching up to do. And um, it's, I mean, it's fabulous. What is there to say? I think, you know, Gone Girl wouldn't exist without this. Would May December yes. exist without this? Would Chicago exist without this? Many, many questions. What, would Nicole Kidman as the baddie in the very first Paddington by Paul Queen exist without this? <gasps> exactly. So true. And Rosamund Pike has cited Nicole's performance as a direct inspiration of Amy Dunn. Oh, whoa. Okay. okay. Perfect. Okay. Confirmed. This is amazing. So did it win any awards to die for? Did it? Did it? (laughs) So to die for, unlike many movies today, I I need to stop, but it's true. Um, To die for was nominated for a BAFTA. Uh, Nicole Kidman was nominated for actress in a leading role in 1996. Amazing. Uh, In line... With some other some other awards we've been talking about, she won Best Actress at the Critics' Choice Award. She won Best Actress in a Comedy or Musical at the Golden Globes. Uh, just a point, I would love if this film was a musical. That I think would really <gasps> kind of go off. Broadway oh, musical adaptation incoming. Yeah, yes. like that, that would yeah. kill. Um, no yeah. pun intended. Um, fun <laughs> fact, Nicole Kidman also won Best Actress at the first Empire Awards. Empire being, you know, the British film magazine that we all know and love. So um, that's fun. And oh, this one makes me happy. Nicole Kidman won Actress of the Year at the London Film Critics Circle Awards, in which I do vote. Yes. So keep an yes. eye on that when we announce them in early February. Uh, just one other thing while we're talking about awards I think Gus Van Sant should have had all the nominations that Todd Haynes should currently be having Mm -hmm. for May, December as well and I also think that what Matt Dillon does in this film and also Joaquin Phoenix as well is not dissimilar to what Charles Melton does in May, December so none of them would be nominated today (laughs) would they? (laughs) 
love you, BAFTA. Oh, I love you, BAFTA. I also saw that uh, she won Best Actress in the Clotrudis Awards, Mia, oh, our new favourite yes. awards, which we've talked about before. My favourite feline film awards yes, body. Yes. Oh, they have the best taste of them all. They do. And so regular <laughs> listeners will know that we, uh, we are instituting our own awards ceremony, which will take place in the final episode of Best in Show Awards season. They are the Brad Moses Awards, although I feel like... Um, Stevens. Stevens. Yes. Alice Ella has Kat a cat named Stevens. Needs a look in here. So the um, the Stevens Brad Moses Awards, for which we are taking <laughs> suggestions, listener suggestions and guest suggestions for the kinds of categories that get overlooked in other awards ceremonies. And so if you were listening last week to our production design episode, um, Grant Major, the Oscar winning Grant Major production designer, and I decided there should be an award for the quietest production design. The kind of production design that that goes unnoticed is not splashy and therefore never makes it to the Oscars. Um, out of this week, in terms of sound, what do you think should be a category for sound? Send us an email to podcast at letterbox.com. I mean, I was thinking about like the, the slurpiest sound effect. I've got one. The Taste of Things. <gasps> if anybody has seen that film... It is, there is pretty much no diegetic music. It is all the sounds of cooking. It's very, very natural. It, it's some of the best sound design I have heard all year. And I'm very, very happy I got to see it. And so, and so what would the award be for um, best fo- food sound effect? Yes, best culinary, <gasps> best mm. culinary sound effects goes to the taste of things. <laughs> Well, I mean, oh, I've just, I've just thought of one. It's not sound. Can I say it now in case? Because I wasn't on last week, so I, I have, I have a late contender for production design. Yes, we'll allow it. Thank you so much. It has to be an award for best color specificity, Ooh. and that goes to Barbie for the shades of pink because Ooh. I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of different shades there. Um, call it, I don't know. Call it the Pantone Awards. Call it the Pink Awards. Mm. Call it the I don't know. Call it what you want. But yeah, the kind of detail of the colour goes to Barbie. Oh, I like that. And that that goes nicely with my most visceral production design award, which is, uh, for me, goes to Kaylee Spaney's toes in that shag pile carpet in Priscilla. Yes. I could feel my feet in that wool. It was amazing. Best sensory experience. Oh, best sensory. Oh, yes. That's for Priscilla's toes in the rug. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to Best in Show. We would love for you to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to spread the word as we get closer and closer to the Oscars. Follow us and our Awards HQ on Letterboxd using the link in our episode notes. Uh, Also... And drop us mailbag questions to podcast at letterbox.com if you have costume or animation or directing questions especially. Let's hear them. Thanks to our crew, Slim for the edit, Sophie for production, Trent Walton for the music, the entire Letterbox content team for all the extra good stuff from Carpets, George for the newsletter, and Brian for his overall producing genius. And to you for listening. Best in Show is a Tape Deck production. This, this, this is a Tape Deck Podcast.